It's Friday, February 4th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. In a dramatic raid in Syria that President Biden approved, U.S. Special Operations Forces conducted a nighttime mission to take out the Islamic State's leader. After a shootout between an ISIS lieutenant and U.S. forces, the IS leader detonated what is believed to be an explosive vest, killing himself and his own family. Gordon Lubold, White House and national security reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how the operation went down. Next, we're learning more about the mysterious Havana syndrome after a panel of experts determined that an external energy source could be behind the symptoms affecting U.S. diplomats and intelligence officers abroad. No device or country has been identified as being behind it, but the experts said that the pulsed electromagnetic energy could be coming from a portable device. Shane Harris, national security reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Finally, as the Winter Olympics get underway, a lot of focus will be on the venues and the snow needed for some 66 medal events that require it. All of the snow for the games will be completely man-made using special snow guns that use specific air and water ratios to make the perfect snow for each event. Bonnie Berkowitz, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for how they make a bulletproof downhill course. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Knowing that this terrorist had chosen to surround himself with families, including children, we made a choice to pursue a special forces raid at a much greater risk than our, to our own people, rather than targeting him with an airstrike. Joining us now is Gordon Lubold, White House and national security reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Gordon. Nice to be with you. Let's talk about uh, this interesting development uh, that happened. Uh, the President Biden authorized uh, some U.S. troops to go into Syria and uh, do a raid on the Islamic State's current leader right now. It was uh, it seemed like, uh, you know, by all the descriptions, a very exciting type of event. But uh, when they got there, uh, he ended up activating a uh, some type of explosive vest. He took himself out. He took his family out. So, Gordon, tell us what happened with this operation. Right. So uh, we kind of understood that there was something uh, underway yesterday and it was very hard to kind of get a sense of what it was until, you know, we did more reporting. But indeed, like you say, they, uh, the American Special uh, Operations Forces descended on this three-story building, really a residence in northwest Syria along the Turkish border. And uh, I think somewhere at the point after they Pros. They had helicopters and their drones and a number of, you know, probably a few dozen American troops. At some point in there, their target, who was a leader of Islamic State, did detonate a what we think was a, a vest, an explosive vest, a suicide vest, otherwise known as, on the third floor where he lived with his family, killing himself and the family members, the force of the blast such that some of the bodies actually ejected out of the building, um, we learned today. And so that then uh, triggered uh, a bit of a firefight with another person on the second uh, second floor of the building who was the leader's deputy. He and his wife barricaded themselves and then uh, I think into a firefight with the special forces that were there. Ultimately, they were killed. Uh, there were some civilian casualties from the original explosion on the third floor, and then probably some others. We're not quite sure. So they, you know, they got their guy, but he was he killed himself before, much like his predecessor, uh, Mr. Al Baghdadi, 
the previous leader of the Islamic State. Uh, thankfully, obviously, there was no American casualties. But this operation, the reason why they sent special forces in there is, I guess, President Biden wanted to limit civilian casualties. Unfortunately, that didn't happen because the uh, IS leader blew himself and his family up. But that was the whole reasoning why they wanted to send special forces in there to begin with. My understanding is that there was also a helicopter failure. They had, had a mechanical failure. So they had to basically destroy that before they left, too. It was reminiscent of the 2011 raid uh, in which uh, Osama bin Laden was killed in about about uh, Pakistan, uh, in which there was a helicopter problem that created a lot of anxiety at, at the time. This was, a, I think, in this case, uh, from what we understand, a purely a mechanical error with the helicopter that was kind of a sideshow. Ultimately, they were able to remove the helicopter, destroy it, and, and leave. I think that they did plan it. You know, these raids are highly risky. They're very dangerous because you get troops on the ground. You're surrounded by areas that there's not a lot of assurances of security in that vicinity. And so they did plan it. I think uh, we were told earlier today that the modeling that was done on the building itself, of course, they had been looking at this building for many months. The president was briefed in December, and then they found their opportunity last night after the weather cleared. But part of the thing that they said was that they had determined that if the target, in this case, Mr. Karachi, um, did detonate a suicide vest, which is common, that the building would not collapse on the civilians, the innocent civilians who were on, inside below. And so I think that in some cases, right, you've got civilian casualties are always a concern, clearly, but I think that they tried to set it up in a way that, that would minimize the ability. And, and what the point that the White House officials were making today was at least a large number of the, probably about a five, eight, maybe a dozen civilian casualties. We don't quite have the right number. Some of those were done, were killed at the hands of, of the Islamic state leader himself when he detonated his past. What do we know about this particular ISIS leader and, and what the group has been up to recently? The Islamic State uh, is still, uh, you know, it was largely, this is an American, you know, U.S. government word is like defeated um, in Iraq and Syria a few years ago, but it's still active. It's just not quite as strong as it once was. Certainly, we saw the impact that ISIS, kind of the Afghanistan branch of ISIS, uh, ISIS-K or ISIS-Khorasan could have on the ground in Afghanistan with the attacks there. So I think that the problem with killing any of these leaders is there's always somebody else who comes behind them. I think the thinking generally is that you kill, you know, when when they got al-Baghdadi, who was the original kind of inspirational leader of, of, of Islamic State, the guy who comes behind him, uh, Mr. Kreshi, uh, who was killed yesterday or died yesterday, you know, is that much weaker. I think they still believe that they have a global problem with Islamic State. But this gentleman, it's fair to say that this gentleman was not as much of an inspirational leader as his predecessor. Thus, you know, the group becomes a little bit less centralized and maybe less potent. But nonetheless, it's a strike in the, I mean, it's a, it's a mark in the wind column for the military and for the administration by getting this guy. Gordon Lubold, White House and National Security Reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
they are saying that it is coming from some kind of source that looks external and somehow is directed or aimed at these individuals who've had these symptoms. So that's a pretty significant finding, and it's actually one that uh, tracks with a, an earlier finding two years ago from the National Academy of Sciences that found essentially the same thing. Joining us now is Shane Harris, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Shane. Thanks for having me. Let's get an update on Havana syndrome. Recently, we got an interim CIA report that basically was talking about how there wasn't this mass global conspiracy to affect Americans with this Havana syndrome. We got over about a a thousand reports of people experiencing these strange symptoms when they were working for the states abroad. That report basically said the majority of those were explained away by pre-existing conditions, maybe environmental factors. There was really this only core group of people that they couldn't really explain what happened. And now we have another uh, report basically saying that they do think it is an external energy source that might be affecting these particular people. So, Shane, help us walk through some of this with uh, what we're learning more about Havana syndrome. Right. So this interim, well, I should say this new report that came out is actually a report from what's called the Panel of Experts. It's often referred to as a shorthand. This was a group that was convened by the intelligence agencies, people from within government, without of gov- outside of government. And they basically said, look, we kind of looked at this core group of people who have the characteristics of what has been come to be known as Havana syndrome. So putting aside other people who have medical conditions you can roll out. And these four, this sort of core group, what is, are the plausible mechanisms, as they put it, the causal mechanisms that could explain what they are experiencing? And what they came down with was they said, when we look at everything, we think some kind of form of energy or wave is actually the most plausible explanation, as they call it, pulsed electromagnetic energy. They're not saying that it's being done deliberately. They're not saying who might be doing it, but they are saying that it is coming from some kind of source that looks external and somehow is directed or aimed at these individuals who've had these symptoms. So that's a pretty significant finding, and it's actually one that's Uh, tracks with an earlier finding two years ago from the National Academy of Sciences that found essentially the same thing. And so when they were looking at this, you know, they were looking into the common characteristics, obviously. So there was the sound and the pressure in the ears, the simultaneous symptoms that people Mm -hmm. were feeling like vertigo and and that kind of directional thing. You know, it it felt like it was coming, you know, from my right side or something like that. That's what leads them to believe they think it is a directed energy attack in that way. Yeah, and then importantly, they don't they don't say attack. They just well, say yeah. it's a form of directed energy, right? Right. But you know, when they get into it, you know, they talk about how uh, you know they say, okay, well, if this thing is if this if that's what this is, what might it look like? And what was I found something really interesting is they said we don't think it would take a lot of power to power this thing, and we think that it actually could be concealed. So you're talking here about potentially, in the view of these experts, a concealed portable device of some kind. That could be doing this. And they even spend a little bit of time talking about how you could kind of rig it up with antennas. So they seem to be, you know, pretty keen on the idea that this is a form of some kind of energy. It appears to be directed. And they seem to spell out that it's at least plausible that this could be a mechanism that somebody could be operating. Right. We mentioned that CIA interim report. So they said there was no big global conspiracy thing affecting people throughout the world as, as you know, they were as affecting spies and diplomats and all that stuff. But this report seems to say, you know, they don't know what device it could be, but they allude to a device, meaning somebody is behind this. 
Yeah, and it's confusing to kind of pair those things up, you know, when you talk, look at the interim CAA report. They were saying, look, we don't see a big sustained worldwide campaign by an actor that explains every one of these cases. What you have to do is kind of peel away some, some facts in that. One thing that they also found was that the vast majority of cases that were being reported were not, you know, quote unquote, Havana syndrome. So when you kind of take those out, you're left with a core group of maybe a few dozen people. And it's not necessarily clear where all those people are. But what the CIA interim report was saying is, look, you know, there's not a single actor causing all of these thousand plus incidents. So this is something different. So now what we're kind of back to is a little bit of square one where the CIA report said, look, you know, we leave open the possibility it could be an actor. They, they don't they don't like spend a lot of time providing evidence for that. This new report from their own experts saying, actually, if it were, you know, basically a threat actor, here's what it might look like. And we actually right. think it is a form of energy. So that's kind of where we are now, which is Honestly, not that different from where they were in, you know, 22 years ago in 2020. <laughs> and, and the reason why we got so many reports is because the government was telling people, hey, if you have experienced anything like this, let us know. So then there was a flood of reports of that happening. That's why they, we ended up getting so many cases at one point. And there's still skeptics of this uh, idea that could be a, a directed energy wave. You know, a lot for a lot of time, people were saying that it could just be a mass delusion. People, you know, some people were feeling it. I, I think I feel it, too. Obviously, people that are suffering from this have said that's ridiculous. That's right. And what's interesting is that the panel of experts actually said, I'll just read from the report here, psychological factors alone cannot account for the core characteristics, those being that ringing in the ears, the vertigo, et cetera. So what they're saying is, look, and the people who have this set of symptoms, and they have to kind of occur together and in a certain sequence for us to call it a Havana syndrome or anonymous health, anomalous health incident, as they call it now, psychological factors can't just explain those. Um, there may be contributing factors for like maybe long-term anxiety or depression. People are suffering from being sick. But what they're essentially saying here is in this small group of cases, it's not all in their head. They're not imagining this, and we don't think it's a psychological event that's causing this. Shane Harris, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Within that machine, it combines compressed air with the water, so you can make different textures and different types of snow. Uh, the water content is really important, as I'm sure we'll talk about, because different sports need different kinds of snow. Joining us now is Bonnie Berkowitz, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Bonnie. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about the Olympics. I'm always excited when they come around, whether it be summer or winter. Obviously, we're going to be doing the Winter Olympics in Beijing. And previously on the podcast, we did talk about the weather efforts going on on behalf of China to control as much as they can. One of the interesting things is uh, they basically need to make all the snow that they need for every event. I think there's 66 metal events that require snow. And just in those mountains where they're going to be doing all this stuff, there just really is no snowfall this time of year. The conditions are great to or man-made snow, but they need to make everything from scratch. So, Bonnie, help us walk through what the process is like. Sure. It's actually really interesting. Um, I figured you feed water through a machine and that's that, but there's a whole system and there's a lot of technical settings and everything that goes in because you have to get the right mix of air and water. So basically you have a snow gun and you feed water through it. And the short answer is it sprays out and turns in, and freezes and turns into snow. But 
within that machine, it combines compressed air with the water. So you can make different textures and different types of snow. Uh, The water content is really important, as I'm sure we'll talk about, because different sports need different kinds of snow. And this isn't new either. I mean, the the past three winter games have all done this, uh, gone this way with man-made snow, but not to this degree, right? This is all uh, set from scratch. So let's talk a little bit about the different snow conditions needed for different sports, Uh, cross-country skiers, freestyle skiers, the downhill courses. They all need something slightly different. Yeah, and I actually didn't know this until I started reporting the story, but none of them really require exactly what a lot of just regular old skiers want on a hill that they go down, which I found really interesting. The cross-country skiers, they have to actually do some uphill. They have to do some climbing. So they want a firm surface because they want to be able to go fast when they're going around. They sort of make that skating motion that I'm sure you've seen with their skis. Right, yeah. But they also, yeah, they also need to be able to climb. So they want a top surface on there, even if it's just an inch or so, that's more uh, more grippy and more, I don't want to say completely powdery, but really more more of the fluffy stuff that we think of when we think of snow. In between cross country and downhill, the freestyle skiers who are doing all these jumps and aerials and things like that and skiing on moguls, They want a firm base so they can take off, but they also don't want to be landing on something that's icy or rock hard. And that brings us to the downhill, which they want it to be just a solid ribbon of ice, which I didn't realize that until I started reporting this. (laughs) Yeah, the downhill Um, course, there's even named rock. So, And that's kind of what they want it to feel like. That's what they want it to feel like, too. Yeah, it's like a vertical hockey rink. I mean, that's what several ice makers or snow makers, but in this case, it's ice makers, described it as. They told me it was supposed to be as hard as a hockey rink and what they call, quote, bulletproof. That's an industry slang term for what the ice is supposed to feel like. Once the course is treated completely, because there's multiple steps that go into it, you know, whether it was natural or man-made, it's really not much of a difference to the skiers. So let's talk about that process, what they do for the downhill, because they smooth it out. They have skiers go down the slope just to kind of uh, uh, tamp everything down even more. Right. It's pretty funny. At some point, um, well, they create the uh, almost the wettest snow that they can. It's half air and half water. Then they make it even wetter from there. It comes out of the machine in a pile, and they take these snow cats and move it around the course, of course. But then they spray it with water, and they have these tilling blades on a snow cat that turns it into what one ski maker or one snowmaker described to me as the consistency of a Slurpee. He said, you basically have a Slurpee on the course. It gets all smoothed out. And then they let it freeze hard. So it's like two or three feet solid of solid ice. And then they have people, often volunteers, who just literally go down sideways or in a little V-shaped snowplow formation and just let their skis smooth out any remaining ripples in the ice. And they do it over and over and over again so that you have a really glassy surface. Bonnie Berkowitz, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.